All right. Sorry, James. I was waiting for the official invitation with how wonderful it is to have a speak and what a great job we're all doing and stuff like that. But we're in our second round, I guess, so it becomes almost normal. Well, as Michelle said, Pastor James tends to forget things every now and then, so I just happened to bring a sermon this morning. <laughs> so, now it has been... It has been great. This summer we have, um, we have been rotating around and we have been preaching with quite a big group of people. And uh, in Holland, that's where I'm from, in case you were wondering what my accent is, we have a saying that says a variety of dishes make you eat very well. And um, I hope that is the case for you this summer, that we tend to all have a little bit of a different style we come at different angles at these psalms, and I hope that uh, this all resonates very well with you. For seven weeks now, we have been reading the Psalms of Ascent, 14 psalms that are found tucked towards the end of the book of Psalms, 14 songs that the pilgrims sung on their way from wherever they lived up to Jerusalem to, to celebrate one of the three annual feasts. So being, at, uh, being seven weeks into this right now, we're actually at the halfway point. We've been traveling for a while right now, and being at the halfway point, I realize that the second half normally is a lot tougher than the first half, right? <laughs> we are far enough in to wonder when this thing is ever going to end, <laughs> but we are not far enough yet to see the finish line to see Jerusalem, or in a way that we have been talking about this, the presence of God. It is at this most difficult point that you start to realize that it is not just about the destination, but that the journey itself is something to be treasured and of equal and perhaps even greater significance than crossing the sin of the finish line. Along this road, we have taken various pit stops, we have taken several detours, and we have various, faced various forms of danger along the road. We have dealt with liars who smiled so sweet but are out to destroy us. We have dealt with the dangers of traveling, like sunstroke and moonstroke and a slipping of the foot. Hostile outsiders and complacent rich men and brutes who will kick us in the teeth when we lay on the ground. Anybody remembers that? People who are against us, wild raging waters, snarling dogs, traps, the wicked, and last week, the droughts. But we have always found the path that God has taken us on from the beginning. We have always come back to it. Not because God is some kind of jack-in-the-box that shows up after every turn that we take or everything that we touch, but because he has been our main focus straight from the beginning. All along this journey, we have been focusing our eyes first and foremost on God himself. And I hope that just like the Jewish pilgrims did, we will do the same thing to focus our eyes, our minds, and our hearts on God. 
To illustrate that the pilgrims did this, I want to give you an example from the various uh, psalms that we have been going through. Psalm 120, I call on the Lord in my distress. Psalm 121, my, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 122, let us go to the house of the Lord. 123, I will lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. 124, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. And 126, the Lord has done great things for us, and we will be filled with joy. You see, the pilgrims set an example for us by focusing on God, first of all, time after time. And unfortunately, this is not something that we mimic very often. For most of us, God has become, and I love the, so the fact that you go to soda so you can actually see how this works, but most of us think as God as the bumpers on a bowling lane. And we feel more than capable to roll our own ball down the lane. And we just want God to make sure that things don't really get out of control too much. But we are the ones rolling the ball. Today I want to take a look at Psalm 127. And I tend to get the Psalms with the famous first line. And um, so today I feel somewhat compelled again too to spend a little bit more time on those first lines. But um, in order to mix it up a little bit, we have chosen this series to read from the message. Uh, so that will be on the screen. I would not ask you to stand up. Why don't you just take a seat, just listen, read, and let this word sink in. If God does not build the house, the builders only build shacks. If God does not guard the city, the night watchmen might as well nap. It is useless to rise early and to go to bed late and to work your worried fingers to the bone. Don't you know that he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? Don't you see that children are God's best gift, the fruit of the womb, his generous legacy? Like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you parents, with your quivers full of children. Your enemies don't stand a chance against you. You sweep them right off your doorstep. This is the word of the Lord. The NIV version reads, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, he stands guard, uh, the guards stand and watch in vain. Unless the Lord builds the city, the labors, the builders labor in vain. Now, the, there are various construction projects mentioned in the, in the Bible, and I'm glad because I wanted to come up with my own construction project, and I'm not much of a construction guy. <laughs> so I just go with the, with the examples that the Bible is giving me. But there is five construction projects that I want to take a look at. The first construction project we find in Genesis 1. God himself, God the creator, builds the world 
as we know it. He creates light. He creates land and sky. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. He creates plants and animals. And ultimately, he creates us in his own image. You see, the premise on which this entire psalm is based is the fact that God works. If, unless, sorry, the one and the NIV says unless, the message says if, if the Lord does not build the house, unless the Lord builds the house, this premise presupposes the fact that God works. We live in a universe and we live in a history where God is at work. And he invites us to join us in harmony with him, to work in harmony with him. And we, all of us, we do work. Why? Because we are created in God's own image. Psalm 127 does not warn us against work. But it warns us against senseless work. It warns us against futile work, against work that is done in vain, work that takes place apart from the Lord. And that brings me to the second building project. In Genesis 11, we find the story of the Tower of Babel. It takes place right after God has purged the world from its evil by means of the flood. And the descendants of Noah have started moving to the east and have settled in the plains of Shinar. And right there, they come together and they decide to build a construction project of such a magnitude that the world has never seen before. They are planning to build a tower that will be so high that it stretches to the heavens, the very dwelling place of God himself. Now, why would they do such a thing? Why would they do such a thing? And Genesis gives us two reasons why they are doing what they're doing. The first thing is to make a name for themselves. To make a name for themselves. Now, is this not the main thing that drives us time after time? Is this not the very thing that makes us concerned about things like job titles and position and the cars that we drive and the neighborhoods we live in and the way that people perceive us? the boy or the girl that we date, or the brand of clothes that we wear. The second reason that Genesis mentions is that they want to build something bigger than themselves. Something bigger that would create a sense of community and that would make sure that people would not scatter over the face of the whole earth. And God does not like this plan. He does not like it one bit. And in an ironic turn of events, he brings on these people the very thing that they were fearing. He scatters them all over the planet. And on top of that, he confuses their languages so that they're not able to communicate with each other anymore. And why did God not like this plan? Because we are not here to make a name for ourselves. We are here to glorify God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, it starts with a question. It says, what is the chief end of mankind? And the answer to that question is to enjoy God, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
the most important thing that you and I can do in this world is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You see, God was not building this house, and the laborers realized very quickly that they were building in vain. It was useless for them to rise early in the morning and to go to bed late and to work their fingers to the bone because God was not in this project. Now, Dallas Willard challenges us to consider that we might be working in vain every now and then. When he says, suppose our failures occur not in spite of what we're doing, but precisely because of it. Let me read that again. Suppose our failures occur not in spite of what we're doing, but precisely because of it. Now, one thing the guys that were building the Tower of Babel had right. They were correct on one thing. Something big will bring people together. We just better make sure that that something big is God and God alone. The third building project that I want to point out today we find in Exodus 25. Moses has just received the law from God and the Ten Commandments. And now God comes to Moses and he asks him to build him a tent or a tabernacle. Now God does not want to bring in an outside interior designer. He wants to do the job himself. And what follows are several chapters of details which make some of the most exciting reading in the Bible <laughs> as to what that tent needs to look like. Finally, after 14 or no, 15 chapters, God moves in. And we read in Exodus 40, verses 30 to 38, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the, God, uh, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And we find that this house, this tabernacle, is built by the Lord. It is not built in vain because the fruit of the laborer's work is the fact that now God himself has set up camp with them. His glory dwells amongst them. What an amazing thing. Again, Dallas Willard describes this work alongside the Lord in the following way. The disciple and friend of Jesus, who has learned to work shoulder to shoulder with his or her Lord, stands in this world as a point of contact between heaven and earth. A kind of Jacob's letter by which the angels of God may ascend from and descend into human life. Does the disciple stand as an envoy or a receiver by which the kingdom of God is conveyed into every quarter of human affairs? So I've given you an example of where the Lord was, where the laborers were building in vain because they decided to work outside of the will of God. And Moses clearly was just doing what the Lord did, and the Lord was right there with him. The fourth construction project that I want to give you is a, is a project that kind of falls right in between those two. 
It is the construction or the building of the temple. And one of the reasons why I want to bring up this, this construction project is that I think that this psalm was written with this construction project in mind. Many scholars think that this psalm was written by Solomon. If you have a title bar in your, uh, in your Bible, it probably says something along the lines, a song of ascent by Solomon, or a song of ascent by Solomon. Yeah, by Solomon, same thing. There are a lot of scholars, on the other hand, though, who think that this psalm was actually written by David to instruct and to encourage his son. And if you look at the King James Version, the title actually says, A Song of the Greece for Solomon. And I tend to agree with these scholars. And I will explain to you why in just a little bit. Early in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David, and David is in his palace. And normally that is not a good thing. Read a couple of chapters further and you see that things happening that are not so good. But, but David has just brought the whole land under his rule. King Saul, is, he's not running for King Saul anymore. He is the legit king of Israel by now. And Jerusalem has just become the capital of the new monarchy. The chapter before, chapter 6, we find that David has brought in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he has not just done that in an ordinary way. He has done that in dancing in his chonies right in front <laughs> of the Lord. I just want to let you know that because he goes actually into some kind of an argument with his wife. His wife doesn't really approve of it. But it's funny. I'm sitting in the back, and it's funny to see how people worship. And the reality is Paul, uh, uh, David comes back to his wife and he says, I'm worshiping the Lord. And I will do this whatever way I think is appropriate to do this. And I just want to give you that sense of liberty as well in our worship gatherings. If you want to raise your hands, feel free to raise your hands. If you want to do it in quietness, do it in quietness. But David has just gone through this. He's sitting in his palace and he is contemplating what's going on. He's together with the prophet Nathan, and he is sitting, and he says to the prophet Nathan, he says, I am living in a beautiful palace, an expensive palace, because it's built out of cedar wood. And God? God lives in a tent. We have to do something about that. This is not right. Now, this seems a good idea to everyone, to David and to Nathan the prophet. Certainly, David's motives were good. Because for about 500 years, and we just talked a little bit about the tabernacle that Moses built, but for about 500 years, this portable device, this tent, was really served a sense of use. The people were traveling. It was originally designed for the Israelites who were on their way from captivity in Egypt to the promised land that was promised to them by Abraham, or actually by God to Abraham. But those wilderness travels were now part of a distant past. And David decides to build a more permanent structure. So he wanted to build God a house or a temple. And who really could doubt that David was the one to do this? After all, he was the man after God's own heart. 
And the Lord had blessed the nations with the blessed the kingdom with victory over its enemy. Prosperity was coming to them, and it seemed really the least that a righteous king could do for his God. Nathan does not even consult the Lord about this whole proposition. He just says, "Yeah, sounds great." So apart from inspiration, he assures David that the Lord is with him in this endeavor. He was not speaking from God. He was simply following his impulse that such a plan must be a good idea. And then God decides that it is not so. So he comes to Nathan while Nathan is trying to sleep, and he does a little bit of wrestling and explanation to Nathan. And he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I was brought out by the Israelites up out of Egypt. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my in my, pe my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So even though David is sincere and genuine, and even though this seems like a very good idea, the Lord quickly lets both David and Nathan know that this is not the case. You see, the mistake that David made was that he presumed, presumed what God wanted. He assumed that God wanted a temple and that he should be the one to build it. And this leads us in a lot of trouble often. Often we presume that we know what God wants rather than trying to find the answers in his word. I'm sure he wants us to vote Republican or Democrat, really doesn't matter. Or he wants us to dress in a certain way when we show up at church. Or he wants, to sing us, he wants us to sing hymns or to be more contemporary. But there is a lesson in the Bible that time after time that the Bible illustrates that it is dangerous when we walk outside the wants of God. When we don't take his word the way that he has brought it to us and we presume beyond what he has been saying to us. But now something remarkable takes place. God does not leave it at that. He doesn't stop here. So let's go on. Verses 8. For people who want to read up on this later, I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and now I'm in verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people. David used to be a shepherd boy. Now he is a king. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and as they've ever done since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give them rest from all your enemies. 
the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of man by floggings inflicted by man. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I will make you a house, says God to David. A dynasty or a kingdom that will last forever. Now, this is ironic, isn't it? God wanted to build, David wanted to build a temple for God or a house for God. And God says, thank you, David, but no thank you. I will build you a house instead. And this was the greater promise. Because the house that God was promising David would last a lot longer than the house that David had planned to build for the Lord. And this is a very touching passage in which God comforts David in what must have been a very big disappointment for him. Because it was not that God disapproved of David or David has somehow fallen out of his favor and because of that he was not allowed to build the temple. It was simply not his time and his place to do so. So he gives David a magnificent promise concerning his descendants and an everlasting kingdom. And that beckons the question, who is the fulfillment of this promise? Is it Solomon, David's immediate son? Or is it Jesus, David's future descendant? And the answer to this question, it's both of them. You see, the Lord will use Solomon to build a temple a physical temple, which will be a pattern for the future descendants and what he will do when he starts building a spiritual temple. In these promises, like I said, some are fulfilled by Solomon and some are by Jesus. Solomon would reign as a king. Jesus would reign as a king over his spiritual kingdom. Solomon would build a temple. Jesus would build his out of living stones. You see, after this takes place, David does two things. The first thing he does is that he admits that he has moved too quickly. The second half of chapter 7, 2 Samuel, is a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving, but also of a realignment to make sure that David is in God's will. And the second thing that he does is that he starts to work very, very hard to make all the preparations needed for Solomon to succeed in building his temple. As we move on in Chronicles, we read, and at this point, David has brought Solomon in. And I just want to remind you, when this whole first thing is taking place in 2 Samuel, Solomon is not even born yet. 
the lady who is going to be his mom is not even on the scene yet. But later in David's life, we find that he is talking to his son, 1 Chronicles 22, 6 to 10. Then he called after his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house for the name of the Lord. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, and you have waged great wars, and you shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son shall be born to you, whom shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And then he goes on in verse 14 to 16. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters, and all types of skillful men for every kind of work, of silver and gold and bronze and iron, and there is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord will be with you. People have estimated that the total amount that David is talking about here is close to $5.5 billion. And while David is sharing this with Solomon, why he is meditating on the physical temple and the eternal kingdom that has been promised to him by God, you can almost hear the last three verses of this psalm that we read today starting to form in David's heart and mind. Don't you know that children are God's best gift? The fruit of the womb, his generous legacy. Like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you, parents, with your quivers full of children. Your enemies don't stand a chance against you. You sweep them right off your doorstep. You see, this is the reason why I go with the scholars who think that, Sol- that David wrote this psalm for Solomon rather than Solomon writing it himself. Because David knew very well that he, that building the temple outside the will of God would be foolishness. God is just simply telling him that he is not the right person for the right time. And instead, God, as we saw, promises him an everlasting kingdom. And may I add to this that he truly has delivered on his promises. You see, David learned, as many of us do when we get older, and I thought that sounds a little tacky when I say when we get older, (laughs) but when the hashtags and the the whatever came, I was like, yeah, I'm in that crowd now. (laughs) But um, David learned that God's kingdom does not hinge on just him. 
And there will be a time, if you have not realized that already, that you will find out that God's kingdom does not hinge on you. Aren't you glad about that? I'm sure that God is. <laughs> but sometimes the best thing we can do for God is not to move or to get out of the way and let others move. Now, I realize that for many of us, including myself, this is a lot more difficult than doing something. Especially when the goal sounds so lofty and godly. You know, what can be wrong with building a temple, right? Or adding a new ministry. Or a different prayer group. An additional church. Or an improved evangelism program. A youth pastor. <laughs> you see, we have a star player on our team, and his name is God. And for us to move in front of him or to leave him on the bench altogether is like the Chicago Bulls trying to win an NBA title with Jordan, Michael Jordan, on the bench. And our star player doesn't need any rest. And he will never be injured. He will never miss a game or show up for practice late. And may I add that we will never be able to outperform him on our own. And he will not come over to congratulate you or to pat you on the back when you think you have done a great job without him. The reality is that the team that we're playing on is all about him. You and I, we are just lucky enough to play on his team. And we better make sure that we pass him the ball. I've become a Christian because of a group called the Navigators. It's a group of people that work on college campuses, very similar to Campus Crusade or InterVarsity. And about 10 years ago, a little bit longer than 10 years ago, I really started to feel like I needed to do more than just come to church. So I called the navigators because that seemed to be the most appropriate thing. Not that there was nothing to do in this church. Absolutely, there was a lot to do. But I, I called the navigators and um, I said, you know, what can I do for you? You guys have been incredibly important to me. In talking to them, I found out that there was no such a chapter in Santa Barbara. There was no navigator, the navigators were not active at the campus of UCSB. So I partnered up with some guys in, at UCLA. And the leader of this group, his dad happened to be the district leader, uh, very similar to a district superintendent, but then for the navigators. And he asked me, and at that time, Josefina as well, because we just got married, if we wanted to consider doing an internship for two years at UC San Diego and then start over here at UCSB and start our own chapter of the Navigators. This sounded really exciting. This sounded almost like building our own temple. The problem was that somehow it did not feel right. Some of you guys know the story because some of you, some of you I consulted with before we made a decision. But as I, this was going on in our lives, we were constantly brought back to the story in Acts chapter 16. 
And if you're unfamiliar with the story of Acts chapter 16, it's the story where Paul wants to go to preach the gospel in Asia. What a lofty idea. And what does God do? Mm-mm, can't go. So he wanted to go to another place, and there is the Holy Spirit stopping Paul from moving in that direction. And then he gets a dream, and a man in Macedonia is begging him to come, and we follow his story from there on. What if we would have done it? What if we would have gone with the navigators? What if Paul would have ignored the Lord and had moved into Asia? Would he ever have made it to Macedonia? What if David would have started to build the temple? Would God have blessed him with an eternal house? Once again, what would, we, what would have happened to us if he would have done it? The answer is right in Psalm 127. He would have labored in vain. And that brings me back to the last, brings me to the last construction project. It's not in the Bible. But I want to mention to you this morning, we have seen that the house does not have to be a physical structure. It's not just a building. The house that God was talking to David about was made, not made up by brick or mortar, but made up by people his family, his lineage, and his everlasting spiritual kingdom. And in a very real sense, the most important house that David has ever built was not the house that he did not get to build. But it was the one that he built on Solomon, on Hezekiah, on Josiah, and ultimately on Jesus. So the question that I want to leave you with this morning is about your construction project. Which spiritual legacy are you building? Parents, how deliberately are you that you are passing the spiritual torch to your children? Are you as excited about the things that they will be doing for God as you are about the things that you want to do for God? Are you preparing a spiritual way for them, as David did for Solomon? And are you prepared to sacrifice your wealth and even your dreams for this? You see, this construction project is the most important project we can carry out. So let us make sure that we do this in the Lord's way because I don't think that neither you nor I want to labor in vain on this one. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before you this morning realizing that the things that we do on our own are really not all that important after all. But the true significance and true purpose is only achieved when we follow your lead, when we join you in building the things that you are already building or that you want to build. So first and foremost, Lord, we want to ask you to communicate to us 
to lay before us what you want us to do. Lord, many times I have used this very verse as an excuse for my own failures. Because I failed, somehow you were not in it. And often that is the case, as Dallas Willard reminds us. But Lord, I think that all of us here in this building this morning want to be in the sweet spot where Moses found himself. That spot where God comes down and tells us, this is what I want, to do, want you to do. But we find in the example of David that unfortunately it's not always this clear. And sometimes we need to realign ourselves to your will, Lord. Father, if we have started to move and to roll closer and closer to the gutter on this bowling alley, Lord, will you push us back and will you refocus us on the targets that you have set out for us to hit? Father, I pray as a parent this morning and for all the parents in this room, will you help us to be like King David, to be able to step back and to say, you know what? not all about me it's about God and you know what my kids might play a bigger role in this than I ever will Lord will you bless our next generation will you will be with, will you be with them and will you help us to prepare the way for them whether it's financially or spiritually Lord Father I want to pray last but not least for this church this Coast Community Church of the Nazarene is your house we only want to build it, Lord, if you are in it with us. We only want to invest in it if you are investing in it, Lord. We only want to play this game if you are on the team with us. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to believe big, to dream, and to see your vision. And then make it happen, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.